make us face our deadness before him. Tonight we meditate on four common stages in God's ways with us from Ezekiel 37 verses 1 and 2. Verses 37, 1 and 2, four common stages in God's ways with us. This is God dealing with a prophet. He's giving him a vision. So this is a very special occasion. This is not going to happen to all of us in this same way. But when God wants to give new life, he often does take us through similar stages as he took the prophet Ezekiel. So again, four common stages in God's ways with us to make us face our deadness before him so that we understand our dependence on him. Follow along in your Bible, says I read for us 30, uh, Ezekiel 37, 1 and 2. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. The four common stages in God's ways with us when he wants to give us new life. First one is seen in the phrase, he brought me out. He brought me out. Now, again, there's a uniqueness to Ezekiel's experience, no doubt. He's a prophet. We are not prophets. He's giving Ezekiel a dream or a vision. He doesn't normally give us dreams or visions, but there is a certain continuity of experience with all God's people when God wants to show us our true situation before him as he sees it. When God wants to open our horizon to see what he sees in us, This is what he does. Maybe not every single time, maybe not in the exact same way, but very, very often. He brought me out. God extricates us from our busyness and from our distraction and from our comfort and from our ease. We are in something, something that feels very normal, very real, authentic, true. And when God wants to show us our true contingency on him, our dependence, our deadness, our dryness without him, he initiates and then causes a change in our situation. He brings us out of what we were in. The situation we were content to inhabit, the situation that perhaps lulled us into complacency or hopelessness or despair or just ignorance. The situation we took for granted. The situation we assumed was all there is. The situation that we might have assumed is all we would want. From what we were in, he brings us out. And he's in control of it. He is the one doing 
the bringing. Ezekiel did not bring God out. God brought Ezekiel out. Ezekiel didn't ask for this. God just did it to him, for him. We are the ones brought. He is active. We are acted upon. It is irresistible and unstoppable for us. We cannot prevent him from doing it, even though it may not be what we want. And yet he remains with us in it the whole time. It does not say, he sent me out. It says, he brought me out. He doesn't leave us. He leads us. But if he is not the one to do the bringing, then we will not be the ones to bring ourselves to see the deadness and helplessness of his people in their sins. He brought me out. Maybe he's done this for you. Maybe he's doing it for you right now. He's bringing you out of what you thought was your reality, what you assumed was all there was, was to see reality, to see yourself, your heart, your people, as he sees. And it's jarred you, it's relocated you, surprised you, it's concerned you, it's unsettled you. This, this is reality. This is what I am. This is what we are. But take notice and take comfort. Take notice. He has brought you out, so pay attention to what he shows you. See it for what it is. And take comfort. He is in control of your change of circumstances. He is with you, and he means it for your eternal good and for the good of all those who will come after you. He brought me out. Second, he set me down. He set me down in the middle of the valley. He stops us from doing business as usual. Stop scurrying around, stop walking, stop running, stop and sit. Sit down. He set me down. He brings us not only out, he brings us low, down. He did not stand me, Ezekiel says, he set me. And he did not set me up on a mountain, he set me down in the valley, and not just anywhere in the valley, but in the middle of the valley, in the lowest part, the low point, the rock bottom, in the part that makes us feel the smallest. He hems us in to what he is strategically and topographically showing us to be the most dangerous and vulnerable part of the valley, surrounded by the walls. Everything around you has the high ground. But also, potentially and agriculturally, the most fruitful part of the valley where all the water drains to make the land fertile. He set me down. There's an authority to that phrase, isn't there? He set me down. As a teacher to a student, as a father to a son or daughter, as the greater to the lesser. And that authority is a subduing authority. 
He subdues my rambunctiousness. He calms me, stills me, silences me, gets my attention. There's, there's also a love to that phrase. He set me down. He took the time and the effort, and he took the trouble. He stopped what he was doing, as it were, to set me down for my own good, to notice something, to teach me what I did not know, to show me something I did not see, to agree with him about something I did not want to admit, to acknowledge something about myself, about humanity, about reality, about God, about how I stand related to God, about how God relates to me. He loved me enough to do that. He set me down. So, friend, if God has brought you out and he has set you down, then sit down. Submit to him. Sit down in the middle of whatever it is he's put you in and look at it and look at yourself in it. Be subdued. After all, there's no use resisting it or trying to run from it like Jonah. When the Lord sets you down in the valley, you don't have any recourse. But you also need no recourse because he has set you down not only by his authority but in his love to show you what you must see, what you cannot go without seeing. He brought me out. He set me down. He led me around among them. Once he's brought us out, once he set us down, brought us away from all we assumed was most important, once he has stopped us in our tracks and gotten our attention, once he subdued us, he does not simply leave us there. He now gives us a guided tour of our deadness, our dryness, our lifelessness in our sins, apart from him. He led me around among them, among the bones that filled this valley. He led me around among them. So notice, he does not leave us to experience it all without him. He leads us around among them, but he brings us up close to them. He makes us intimately acquainted with the depth and breadth and texture of our deadness. He brings us face to face, up close and personal, with our own lifelessness. He gives us time and opportunity to take it all in for ourselves. He led me around among them. He walks us around in the great mausoleum, the crypt, the catacombs, the sepulcher of the soul. Look, open your eyes, look at it, take it in. Slow down. And even shows us the deadness of the church apart from God's enlivening spirit. And he opens our eyes so that we ourselves have to say it with Ezekiel. Behold. Behold. Look. 
And behold, behold, fourth stage, there were very many bones on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Realization. I see. I see. He makes us see so that we are the ones who notice, we are the ones who articulate the problem for ourselves and for others. We are the ones who direct our own attention and the attention of others to what God has already seen and now has shown us. Look at the magnitude and scope of the death. Behold, there were very many Ezekiel is dismayed. He's disheartened. He's demoralized by it. How many? Look at all these bones. As far as the eye can see. How many are the dead in their sins? There are so, so, so many. There are too many. It's overwhelming to Ezekiel and to us how many are dead in their sins. The scope and size of the problem is so far beyond us. They will almost wonder, why why are you even showing me this? I can't do anything about this. And the perspective God gives Ezekiel from which to look at it, he leads me around among them. It's immersive. God does not give Ezekiel merely an aerial view from above. He doesn't take him around in the ancient equivalent of a helicopter in his vision. And he doesn't merely give him a panoramic view from around the rim of the valley. He gives him an immersive view from among them, among them in and with them as if he is wading through the piles and piles and piles and piles of bones. It is ghastly, it is grisly, it is bone-chilling to the one who still lives. And then look at the intensity of the death. And behold, they were very dry. Very dry. So final. For such a long time, dry, baked in the sun, motionless, unresponsive, dehydrated, calcified, unattended. These were living people once. And now look at them, dismembered and broken, fractured, scattered, shattered. It is hopeless. God says, look at them. And Ezekiel says, look, I know, I see, look, you look. You look, God. Who's he talking to? Who's who's Ezekiel even talking to when he says, behold? Look at them. So many. So dry. There's nothing in such bones to revive. It's not like in The Princess Bride where Miracle Max says of Wesley, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. It's not like that here. There's no vestige of life. 
nothing viable to restore or rehabilitate. There's no use in Miracle Max putting his billows into Wesley's. I mean, he's dead. He is, he's all dead. His bones are all dead. And they would have made Ezekiel ceremonially unclean for days on end. Exposure to such death was disqualifying for worship. God says to Ezekiel, look at what has become of my people. If we read on a little, we find in verse 11, God tells Ezekiel why he showed him this vision. Son of man, verse 11, behold, behold, look, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. That, that is what God wants Ezekiel to admit. Before God shows the prophet what he will do. The rest of the vision, verses 3 to 10, is God bringing bone to bone. And in one of the most exciting phrases in the Bible, behold, a rattling You trace that little word, behold, from behold, there were very many, behold, they were very dry, and then behold, a rattling. Ah, something good to behold, finally. Yes. God puts flesh on those bones, raises them up to new life, makes them a great army for the Lord of hosts, and he teaches Ezekiel in verse 12 to behold something else than just death and bones. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. But before he does, he wants to make sure his people know how great a thing it is that he is about to do and how little they can do it for themselves. He will have us know what we are up against and what it is that he himself will overcome in us. He brings us out sets us down, leads us around so that we see not merely our weakness and ignorance, not merely our stubbornness and sickness. We are not just mostly dead to God apart from Christ. We are all dead, all the way dead, totally unresponsive, unable to respond, helpless outside Jesus. And God will even remind a prophet of the important fact that from time to time to bring us face to face with our total dependency on God for all power and ministry. These bones are dead. Can these bones live? You alone, Lord, Lord, know. And what does he say to him? Prophesy. You start preaching to these dead bones, and you watch what happens. You got faith enough to do that? Preach to dead bones? You think I'm a God who can do something to dead bones when you preach to them? Jesus must regenerate. Jesus must breathe his spirit into our hearts and fill the lungs of the soul with a breath of life. Jesus must create us and others anew so that we all have new nerves to feel, new muscles to repent, new minds to believe, new eyes to see, new ears to hear, and hearts to love. He must convert. And he will have you know that if he's going to use your catechizing and homeschooling to convert your kids, 
It will be by his life-giving power, not yours. If he is to use your evangelism to convert your co-workers, it will be by his life-giving power, not yours. And if he is to renew whatever spark of the Spirit's life you already have as a Christian, it will be by his life-giving and life-renewing power, not your own holiness or love or righteousness before him. Only as God breathes the breath of life into the dead soul can preaching and even prophecy be used to bring them to new life. This death is what we are up against. And yet, as we proclaim God's word, God breathes his spirit into dead and hopeless hearts. And that is our hope, because God is the God of life. And then, when God does that, God says, you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Let's pray. Although we have been unbelieving, forgive us for our unbelief. We have preferred to stay in what busies us instead of letting you bring us out. We have preferred to run around instead of to be set down by you. Forgive us. We have not wanted to admit or look at the deadness of our own hearts and lives before you. We have tried to see where life might be in order that we might speak to it and not to dead bones. So we pray, engender faith. Make us not unbelieving, but believing. For our own renewal in spiritual life. And for the renewal of life in others. For new life in those who are still dead. May we believe that you are the God who puts flesh on dead bones in connection with the proclamation of your word by those who are weak and frail and that you will, by your grace, stand up a great army who bears your name in faithfulness and truth and you will make us know that you are the Lord. So, Lord, we pray, make us know that you are the Lord. Raise us up. Raise others up. Make us know that you are the Lord. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.